you and welcome to Small Screen Science, the podcast where we look at the science behind your favourite TV shows. I'm Karen. I'm Emma and this week's episode is called Spooktacular Science because (laughs) it's a dark and stormy afternoon and we're at the point in the calendar where the veil between the world of the living and the world of the dead is at its thinnest. That's right, we are recording on Halloween and we're choosing (laughs) to wander the astral plane and have a look at the science behind Most Haunted, one of the UK's longest running and most popular ghost hunting shows. And we're going to try and squeeze in a few paranormal puns, obviously, and Emma's managed to fit in a few of the classics there in the the opening phrase. Um, But um, we're going to try and marry some different names for your supernatural friends um, and we hope to lift your spirits. Oh, oh no. (laughs) Sorry, let me do it. Let me do it as it is in the script. Ooh. Oh dear, that was that was one uh, one pun in already. Very nicely done. So um so most haunted. I mean it's not the most like recent or popular show that we've actually tackled on this podcast, but it did actually give us a really um great opportunity to go down some quite interesting science rabbit holes, didn't it? Yeah, and it's it, it is one of those classics, isn't it? I mean everybody knows about Yvette Fielding doing her screening. Oh my god. Did you did um... you used to watch it? Cuz I used to watch it every now and again with my parents. We wouldn't mm. sit down uh, to watch it as an event but sometimes we'd watch it if it was on and have a good giggle and it's like Derek Akora and Yvette's screams <laughs> are uh, definitely a bit of a soundtrack to a certain part of my childhood <laughs> yeah and the and the fact that they did it all with you know kind of heat sensitive cameras and all that kind of stuff it just it just made it a little bit more creepy didn't it and it was that kind of turn off all the lights and just oh yeah you had to them. watch it in the dark yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. okay Definitely worth looking back on. <laughs> I, yeah. <definitely. laughs> okay, so um, let's start then with a definition. Let's uh, let's clear some mm-hmm. things up. So a ghost is yeah. defined as an apparition mm-hmm. of a dead person. And a haunting yeah. is uh, is when apparitions or other associated phenomena take place. So, you know, you've got things like knocks and raps or cold spots um, in a certain place. Mm. So, you know, for example, the Overlook Hotel could definitely be defined mm. as a haunted place. <laughs> I think it can, <laughs> yes. I think you might be right there. Um, and what's interesting is obviously YouGov have done a number of polls looking at people's belief in the paranormal. Hang on, and you can't say ghosts. obviously you, YouGov have done a poll <laughs> of people's belief in ghosts because this is not one that I was expecting to find when we researched this. Really? <laughs> um, well, 2019 actually was the most recent one I could find. And that said that 45% of Americans believe in ghosts, either definitely or probably. I mean, that's quite that's quite a high number, isn't it? That's quite a high number. Mm, in yeah. contrast, in Britain, actually, these are these are some of my favourite stats that we found. In Britain, in okay. two thousand and fourteen, thirty four percent of uh, people said that yeah, maybe they think that ghosts exist. Um, mm-hmm. But in two thousand and sixteen, a survey showed that actually British people are more likely to believe in ghosts than a creator, which I found quite interesting. That is interesting, mm. isn't it? Because quite often there's a link between people's belief in ghosts and the afterlife and people's belief in in God and a creator, because there's an obvious link there, isn't there? So that's quite yeah. interesting that, you know, you've got that proportion because that's quite a high proportion, isn't mm. it? Yeah. Um, and the fact that, you know, uh, 1% apparently of the UK population say they communicate with ghosts or they take part in paranormal investigations. Now, 1% doesn't sound like a lot mm. until you realise that the country's 60 million people. So, so that's actually, quite a lot of people. <laughs> that's yeah. a fair few communicating. Yeah, but I, I, absolutely. Having said that, I think uh, as soon as you go to the pub with people, everybody has a story about like their nan's sister or somebody that they sort of know mm. who yeah. um, can, can connect with spirits or, or has some interesting um, kind of ghostly stories, I think. So... Maybe we are all only a few steps away from a medium. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> so they've done their research, but how is it that actually research scientists determine our level of belief in the paranormal? Like, how is it actually, how can you actually measure that? Well, they have to, because there's been actually a lot of research into people's belief in ghosts and the paranormal and hauntings and that kind of thing. And one of the common measures they use is something called Gertrude Schmider's Australian sheep goat scale. Okay. One fantastic name. Two, sheep goat scale. You're going to have to walk me through this. <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, this have to do with ghosts? <laughs> well, actually, the idea is that um, you're either a sheep and that's someone who's a believer or you're a goat, which means you're a doubter. And this is all based on the Bible, on the New Testament. And there was a simile there about Christ separating people as a shepherd um, into either sheep or goats, so separating them 
the sheep from the goats, if you see what I mean. Ah, it's a, okay. It's part of the Bible. So that's where it's come from. Um, and what it does is it uses a series of statements and you either agree or disagree with those statements, you know, mm. like on a classic scale of how much do you agree or disagree. And it's been adapted over the years and there are a number of other scales as well, but I thought that was my favourite. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> oh, okay. So you can get a reading as to whether you're uh, mostly sheep or mostly goat. That's pretty exactly, cool. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, most paranormal beliefs in ghosts and hauntings actually tend to focus around things like seances and the Ouija board, Mm. something where you've got like a tangible response that people can can feel connected to the spirits and things like that. But um, lots of the research, because there is actually research into these things, and lots of the research Mm. into these things came about or started in the Victorian times. Mm. So actually Michael Faraday was one of the most famous people to get involved in this research. And um, a lot of people don't know this, but at the time he was also investigating spiritualism. Yeah, and, and looking for table table knockers and all that kind of thing. Trying <laughs> table, to, is, knockers. Is, table knockers. Is this real or is this set up? So yeah, it was there was lots of scientific research going on at the time, all the way up through the you know the First World War and everything. It's amazing. I bet you're a bit of a table knocker, Karen. Um, <laughs> so he was one of the first people to describe what's known as the idea motor effect. Um, mm-hmm. So you know when you see people doing a, um, a Ouija board, the Ouija board can rock quite quite aggressively, and the skeptic side is okay. Well, somebody's pushing it, but. Everyone yeah. around the table swears blind that they're not pushing it. Mm. And actually, the idea motor effect is where you can actually be the one pushing it or you are making these movements, but you are completely unaware you're doing it. It's a form of unconscious movement that you don't feel you've got ownership of. Yeah. And, it, and, it's, and it's kind of like these small unconscious movements, isn't it? And when you've got a group of people all doing it. It's a little bit like um, if you ever went on the Millennium Bridge before they fixed it or one of these other kind of bridges and mm. and you walk on it and everybody's, you know, there's a large group of people walking on it and then it starts swinging to a rhythm. And what people are doing is subconsciously walking in the same way. I'm swinging to the rhythm, by the way. Everyone you are. can't see it. But, <laughs> but everybody subconsciously joins in that same rhythm. Mm. Um, and one of the classic examples of this is called the magic pendulum. So this is where you have a pendulum on a piece of string and you hold it up in the air and you keep your hand absolutely stationary and that you might have like yes or no written on a piece of paper or something mm. like that and you ask a question and the pendulum will move and that uses the idea motor effect and and um, Michael Chevrel who's a French chemist um, back in 1812 he mm. was one of the first people to kind of question what was happening um, and at the time there were lots of experiments going on with scientists were using the magic pendulum to try mm. and work out what elements were in compounds and things like that so oh. he he placed the magic pendulum over some mercury and it started to spin. Mm-hmm. And then he placed a piece of glass between the pendulum and the mercury and it stopped spinning. And that mm. kind of suggested that maybe it could detect mercury. Um, but what he did then, and this is really crucial, is he did a, what we would now call a double blind trial. So he blindfolded himself and then he got his assistant to move the glass backwards and forwards. So he didn't know whether the glass was there or not. Mm. And when he did that, he discovered that the pendulum didn't move at all. So it was, he knew then he was doing something to make the mm. pendulum move. And that was kind of the first example. And you can actually try it, something you can try at home, the magic pendulum. Well, maybe, maybe not, because then he actually proved that as soon as you were told that it was you subconsciously making these movements, you know, it wasn't actually a, an act of ghostly intervention or indeed of magic. Um, those movements actually stopped in subsequent trials. Yeah, and, and this is something that's being investigated even up to today. So there was a paper actually in 2019, and what they did was they used uh, motion capture to actually watch what people's hands were actually doing. And what they found was that um, the fingers holding the pendulum generate an oscillating frequency. So that's kind of like the number of swings backwards and forwards in a regular rhythm in a second. And that was close to the resonant frequency of the pendulum. So that's the natural vibrating frequency of an object. So if, if how much you are gently moving it resonates with the resonating frequency of the string and the pendulum then it will move even though you're doing tiny tiny movements and you're not even conscious of it Mm. the pendulum will move quite a bit so it amplifies it in a way exactly and that's the same thing that's happening on that rocking bridge as well you're kind of amplifying Ah. it so okay we've covered a little bit of physics there but we do also like to explore a bit of psychology on this podcast Mm. don't we and for a long time psychologists have been looking into paranormal experiences beliefs and you know trying to unpack the reasons why some of us believe and some of us are skeptics um and actually our first guest on the podcast is is definitely a skeptic we can we Mm. can give him a big old sticker that says skeptic (laughs) can't we yeah Um, absolutely professor chris french is an expert in all things debunking paranormal activity 
Well, thanks so much for joining us. Have you done many kind of podcasts and things like this before, or is this your first rodeo? <laughs> no, I've done feral, feral few, <laughs> yes. Perfect. Yes, Karen said you were the go-to guy. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, who are you going to call? <laughs> <laughs> Christopher French. <laughs> hey, thank you. <laughs> so, so talk us through being a paranormal expert then. You know, what does your research actually look like? Uh, well, it, can, it varies, basically. You know, I mean, it depends on the particular area that we're investigating. Um, I mean, I, I refer to the area of psychology that I am interested in as anomalistic psychology, mm. uh, mainly because, obviously, you know, people would ask me over the years, what, what is your area of research? And I would say it's the psychology of ostensibly paranormal beliefs and related phenomena, which is a bit of a mouthful, and I wanted to be catchier. It's a business card. I looked around, <laughs> looked around and, and, and anomalistic psychology seemed to kind of be the, the phrase to cover that. Uh, and that covers everything from um, alien abduction claims through people who claim to have psychic powers, think they've seen a ghost. Uh, if it's weird, then yes, we're interested in it. In terms of, kind of how you actually go about that, it really does depend on, on the question that you're trying to answer. So some of the stuff that we do is kind of very similar in terms of setup, experimental design and so on to just standard experimental psychology, except we're looking into the possibility of senses that are not recognised by conventional science. Um, or it might be that we'll set up a test for whether people can really douse for water or uh, whether people can um, dream about future events or whatever. So you have to design the test to, to fit the claim. So now, I mean, he's quite a famous sceptic and you might think that sceptics are likely to have had like really rigid lifelong beliefs or disbeliefs in this case. But he also explained that that isn't always the case. And in fact, I, mean, I used to believe in a lot of this stuff as a teenager. You know, I was mm. fascinated with it and I, and I actually believed a lot of it. It was just the time when Uri Geller first appeared on the scene. Oh, yes, yeah. And, oh, I was so excited. I remember I was in the sixth form at school. I was so excited because there were scientists saying this guy's the real thing. And it seemed so amazing, you know. Um, and it wasn't until I kind of started to learn more about psychology and the way that we can fool ourselves and that we can fool others on occasion um, that I became more sceptical. And I think I've, I've kind of gone from being a, a believer to being kind of a fairly extreme sceptic. Mm -hmm. And I've come back towards the middle ground. I think there's, there's enough suggestive evidence around that there might be something in some of these claims, not the vast majority, but just maybe one or two things that... Uh, you know, might be genuine phenomena. Um, if I had to bet my house, I'd, I'd bet against all of it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, but I could be wrong. And I'm, I think that's a really important part of being a sceptic to admit that you, you could be wrong. Maybe new evidence would come along and make you change your mind. So we're doing this, um, we're doing this program about most haunted. And uh -huh. next, next <laughs> week, we're going, we're going to Shepton Mallet Prison. Uh, on a little ghost hunt. I noticed you needed some wine um, to knock oh, back yes. that statement. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, so for people in terms, specifically in terms of ghosts, have you, have you ever investigated that? Or I mean, I, I, I did two, two series of ITV's attempt to compete with Most Haunted. Um, this was a programme called Haunted Homes and I was the kind of resident sceptic for it. Um, so I think I've got a, kind of quite an insight into the way these mm. programs work. The basic setup that the team for Haunted Homes was myself as the professional wet blanket. Um, the psychic, who was the star of the show, you know, it was her pronouncements that were listened to. And our paranormal investigator, who would go in with lots and lots of kit to make it look like he was doing science. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but the thing was that none of us, including our psychic, who, uh, you know, I, although I don't agree with her, we got on very well, um, nobody ever faked anything. Now, that meant that nothing ever happened <laughs> except in people's heads, <laughs> which is probably why we didn't get a third series, you know. Um, but it was interesting from a kind of lay psychology point of view to get an insight into um, what 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 can what can happen in these situations um i mean they realized kind of quite early on that you really want to get the skeptic out of the way 
because skeptics just kind of dampen the atmosphere. So you know, you're sitting there in the dark with the with the kind of night cameras, and and somebody says there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a noise, and someone says, oh, "What was that?" And you say, well, "I think it's probably just your central heating cooling down." <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the kind of the atmosphere comes right down. Um, whereas our psychic, she was very good at this, and she knew what she was doing would ramp it up, ramp up the atmosphere. So when someone said, oh, what was that noise? She'd say, oh, yeah, and, and, and can you see over there? It looks like there's some those weird lights coming through that wind, you know, and it would go up and up and up. And and these were people, that the whole idea was that we um, went into houses where people genuinely, as far as we could establish, believed they had a ghost. So they were already believers, so, and they were already, in some cases, a bit scared, you know. So that was very kind of fertile ground to then kind of ramp things up a notch or two. Although, objectively, because we had all this kit, we had, obviously, the film crew themselves had all their kit, and then on top of that, you had all of our paranormal investigators' kit, which included things like um, EVP recorders, uh, motion detectors, infrared cameras. Um, but we never recorded anything. In fact, well, I shouldn't take it back. On one occasion, there was one occasion where what had been reported there was that sometimes people claimed they could hear children's voices singing Ring Ring the Roses, and sometimes they could hear a ghostly sneeze. When, when the sneeze noise happened, they did record it. Our, our paranormal investigator did have it recorded, and so the next morning they played this back to me, and there's no doubt at all, it is definitely a sound. Anyway, the final night, the second night, we always did the same thing because we didn't just investigate your ghost for you. We got rid of it. It was a public service. And so it was just before this was about to happen. I popped into the loo on the landing where this noise had been recorded. And as I'm coming out, Mark Webb, our paranormal investigator, was there with a somewhat disgruntled look on his face. And I, he was pointing at the wall and what, what is it? Ectoplasmic snot? What is it? Is it the final proof? Um, I looked away, and there on the wall was an automatic air freshener. Oh, <laughs> yes, gutting. So yeah, oh, we, we kind of hung around for a couple of minutes, and sure enough, it went, and that was the noise that had been recorded. Uh, so we did interviews oh. to camera the next morning to so say, yes, yeah, we figured it out, guys. When the program went out. They made a huge thing about the sneeze. Didn't include the explanation. <laughs> um, so let's stop and talk about ghosts for a minute. Yes. Have you heard of the legend of Bloody Mary in, in one of its many variations? Yeah. I mean, that's the classic, isn't it? It's going into school toilets and seeing her in the mirror. So you've got kind of some kind of ritual that you do. So it might be switching the lights on and off. It might be spinning on the spot. It might be staring at the mirror for long periods of time. And Saying then Bloody her Mary name several times. Yeah. yeah. And then, then she appears, or maybe a white lady appears, or a green lady, depending on where you are in the country. But it's always the same kind of idea, isn't it? So actually, Robert Burns, in mm. his 1786 poem, Halloween, so very thematic Ooh. for today. Yeah. Um, this poem actually describes things like charms and spells that are used on the night of Halloween. And in mm -hmm. the footnotes to the poem, he actually describes a very similar a mirror ritual, which was used in Britain. And you can, um, you can carry out this experiment yourself if you fancy a little extra haunting today, listeners. Um, mm -hmm. The key is to, is to make sure you've got really dim lighting. So do it in an evening, turn off all the lights in the bathroom and maybe just use your mobile phone to Torchlight, but have it behind you, have it on the floor, mm -hmm. and just sit and watch for a period of time and see if your face changes. And some people start to see a change very quickly, and some people, you know, over a longer period of time. And I say that because actually research has been carried out um, to show that people actually do see changes. Um, and this was carried out by uh, Giovanni Caputo, and he did it by accident, basically. He was investigating something else, and he discovered. Um, that people could actually see a change in their face in the mirror and a strange face appear. 66% of the people described having seen a huge deformations of their own face reflection, Ooh. which is quite a lot, isn't it? It's quite a high percentage. Mm. And 48% saw a fantastical or monstrous being. Absolutely They saw their terrifying. face morph into a monstrous being. And, and this was genuine research as well. So, mm. you, know, why, you know, why does this happen? Why do we see these different apparitions? It could be something called the Toxler fading. Um, and this was actually first recorded by Charles Darwin's granddad, Erasmus, Very in cool. the late 18th century. Can you what imagine? What a fabulous so, family. <laughs> um, and what he did was he put some, some scarlet silk on a white paper 
and he stared at it for long periods of time. And what actually happens if you do that is the colour fades until it vanishes completely. What are you doing today, Grandad? Spooky. Just looking at the silk. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of silk on white paper, just staring at this silk. Um, and actually, actually, this was repeated by Toxler, which is why it's called Toxler fading. And he put coloured patches on a wall mm. and the same thing happened. So if you stared at it for long periods of time, the colour just disappeared. It could also be something to do with neural adaptation. So the neurons actually decrease or stop their response if the stimulus doesn't change. So if you're staring at something for long periods of time, it's almost like, well, I don't need to send a signal anymore because mm, nothing's it's changed. There. Mm. It's there, nothing's changed. And what you what happens is your brain kind of fills in the gaps. And mm. that's where the morphing happens, is the filling in the gaps. Um, and then when you blink or maybe you move slightly, it resets so it will return back to your image again. And then as you're staring, it will change. So for so, those 10 minutes, if you're sat in your bathroom in, in dim lighting, folks, keep your mm. eyes propped open. There'll be no <laughs> blinking and you might um, increase your chances of seeing something a little bit odd. <laughs> so now now we're on the subject of ghosts um let's take it back to chris um he of course had plenty to say about the psychology that comes into play uh particularly when people have ghostly experiences all right so ghosts <laughs> there's, there's all kinds of factors that, that, that come into play um what you typically find is that you know something has kind of triggered that thought in the first place maybe objects have been moved um, but something's happened that's given people the impression that maybe their house is haunted. Once you've got that idea, then even very mundane events, you know, you can't find your car keys in the morning. Oh, it's the ghost will have moved them. Well, no, it's not probably. You've probably just forgotten where you put them, you know, <laughs> become, become interpreted within this framework. And so we know that the kind of, I'd say the two biggest psychological factors that make you more likely to have a ghostly experience are, first of all, context. You know, I mean, you probably experience this yourself if you go to a, an old hotel or a stately home and somebody says, oh, and this room's haunted. You know, then <laughs> when you go in, suddenly it kind of feels different and every little noise that you wouldn't normally have even noticed, you do and so on. Um, and there's kind of empirical experimental studies that have looked at this where people have been taken into buildings and either told that there was paranormal activity had been reported there or given some other cover story and it's the ones who are told that there's been paranormal activity who report the most anomalous experiences um the other thing uh, it, the, the other important factor is belief do you already believe in ghosts and uh, richard wiseman a friend of mine did a, a a nice study at hampton court palace where again they got people to just go around and just record whether or not they had any ghostly experiences and uh, basically, it turned out that the people who already believed in ghosts reported more of them, and they were more likely to interpret those anomalous kind of experiences as being evidence for ghosts. Yeah, so, so context and belief, two really important factors. Now, in terms of unexplained events, he made an obvious point there that just because you don't think you can find a reason for it doesn't mean there isn't a reason for it. And I think that's really important. Mm, mm. So often the difference between believers and non-believers is whether they're willing to accept the fact that there is a rational explanation, they just haven't found it yet, or whether instead you want to fill that gap uh, in knowledge by a paranormal explanation. Mm. Uh, and there's a really, really good example of this. I love uh, this. And, mm. and you, can, you can find the YouTube uh, video of it and it's excellent. So I want you to imagine you've got, um, got a little shed and you, it's a tinkerer shed. So you've mm. got like a, you've got like a desk and, and maybe you've got screws and, you know, lots of other different bits and pieces all laid out on the desk. And you go to, you go to bed and you get up and you come back and you go back to shed the next day and someone has tidied up the shed. All of those things you left out and you know you left out are back in the box. So you think, oh, maybe I made a mistake or whatever. And you do the same thing the next night. You come down and it's all tidy. Mm. Some kind of little pixie or ghost in your shed tidying up after you. Yeah, absolutely. And this actually happened to, yeah. to someone in the UK. It's fantastic. This this lovely old man, he, yeah. he did that and he got his wife to come and check with him as well. He was like, mm -hmm. I'm not going senile. We've definitely got um, <laughs> a really tidy ghost that's inhabiting mm -hmm. my shed. Um, yeah. So to kind of try and prove it, what he did with his friend was he left a camera out overnight yeah. looking at this desk, this work workbench that was just littered in stuff. And what he found in the morning was so good, it actually made the news. Yeah, There's a mouse living in his shed 
that mm. would come out and it would scuttle over the worktop and it would pick up things that were almost half the size of it and yeah. everything it could pick up it would put back in this box and it would <laughs> it would systematically spend an hour clearing this workshop and in a, you know if somebody said to you oh it's not a ghost it's not a pixie it's definitely it's just a mouse just tidying up i mean you're not going to believe that person are you <laughs> no 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 you'd be you'd be like sorry this isn't a disney movie um this is this is crazy uh, it's almost more likely to be a ghost but um yeah. in one of the news pieces where they were looking mm. at this they spoke to a vet who actually said that um if you understand mouse behavior mice can actually be really organized creatures um and do like to create systems and create order um mm. so not only was it probably doing what it felt was a good job, you know, tidying things away, it also has probably like inhabited that environment for a long time. So seized yeah. that workshop as its home. So if anything, he was probably thinking, oh God, this it's messy again. I must tidy. So maybe the mouse was thinking there was a, a mouse ghost coming out during the day and untidying the shed. And then he had to tidy it all up afterwards. <laughs> yeah, really, really messy day ghost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we've debunked that haunted shed. Uh, let's talk about the science <laughs> behind haunted houses, shall we? Yeah. And again, lots of research done into this. And there's um, there was a paper actually released in June uh, 2020. And this looked at the last 20 years of research into haunted houses mm. um, and looking at all the different phenomenon. And there was actually an earlier paper in 2001 that did exactly the same thing. Um, and what they found was that um, when they looked at the environmental conditions, so when you go into a haunted house and you think, oh, this is definitely haunted, there's certain things that that kind of trigger that. And, and all the research that looked into this um, focused mostly on static, different lighting levels, um, the quality of the air, so that might be strange smells or something like that, temperature, infrasound. Now, that sound that is uh, beyond human hearing, um, and electromagnetic fields. Yeah, and actually, interestingly, so Chris French, our guest from earlier, he was involved in a project which was which basically tried to make an artificial haunted house by mm. systematically changing some of these factors. So things like infrasound and electromagnetic fields in different rooms. Yeah, and, and what the participants knew in advance, that they, there were going to be some anomalies within the house. So as they went in, they knew that they were expecting that to happen. Um, and they were asked to record those on a map of the room. And then they were also given the Australian sheep goat scale questionnaire. Very nice. Very <laughs> nice. Find out who's more likely to be sensing these things than others. Yeah. Um, so although many of the, the participants actually did report um, anomalous sensations or spooky feelings in certain parts of the house, the number that was reported was actually completely unrelated, it turns out, to the experimental conditions. And what they found was that, you know, if you're more likely to be a sheep or a believer on the scale, then you were more likely to actually say that you felt phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Their feedback sheets were just covered in. I, I felt this here and here. Yeah, it just wasn't unfortunately correlated to the kind of experimental design of the house and the rooms that they'd set up to be spooky. Yeah. Um, and actually, very recent research, so actually published three days ago or um, accepted for publication three at days ago. At time of recording. <laughs> at time of recording, which is uh, uh, very recently. Oh, we're hot off the press, we are. Yes. Um, they were investigating something called a recreational fear. Hmm. Um, and this is where um, you kind of have that mixed emotional response of feeling fear and enjoying it at the same time. I struggle to enjoy feeling fear, but I do appreciate <laughs> that there is um, a certain level of it, which is quite thrilling. Um, mm. So essentially, this this research shows that um, horror is the most entertaining when it does trigger a physical response. So, mm. for example, like an increase in heart rate, but it's not so scary that we actually find it overwhelming and we don't feel really, really intensely at risk. So... This concept was used in a commercial haunted house in Denmark mm. where they actually monitored people's heart rates as they were going through them and monitored them and their experience during um, in real time using monitors. Um, so afterwards, they got the participants to go through and evaluate their level of fright and enjoyment for each, each encounter that they were monitoring. So there were people positioned around to give them things like jump scares. Yeah. yeah. And they found that there was this, this real sweet spot. There's a Goldilocks level of fear, which does vary between people where it actually is enjoyable to be experiencing that level of fear yeah so so if you're designing a haunted house you need to make sure that it's not too terrifying or too tame and the big issue is that 
everybody's different, <laughs> which makes it really, yeah. really complicated. So some people like higher levels of fear than others. I am not a great horror fan, I have to say. So lower levels of fear would be good for me. <laughs> and no, well, I mean, no, me neither. But um, mm-hmm. and knowing this, what is it that we did for this episode <laughs> when we were brainstorming things that could be fun? Um, we went on our own actual most haunted style ghost tour, <laughs> didn't we? I think uh, I think we should probably share some of that now. What do you reckon? Ghoul on then. Oh, okay. Well done. <laughs> uh, we visited uh, Shepton Mallet Prison and it's over 400 years old. It's reportedly the most haunted place in Somerset or indeed the most haunted prison in the UK. And that depends on what you read and where you read it. So when we spoke to Chris Rent earlier, one of the things that he said uh, would make you more likely to experience something a little ghostly um, mm-hmm. was that context was provided. Yes, yeah. And we certainly, we certainly were given context, weren't we? So we've already discussed whether we're kind of believers or not. I think you can probably guess what side of the fence we sit on that. But certainly we were definitely given context at Shepton Mallet before we embarked on our own most haunted adventure. Yeah, we were, we were left to roam the buildings and the cells by ourselves. And, and a lot of the prisons actually from Victorian times. Mm. And Charlie from the prison actually sat down with us for a chat about the prison's history and its spooky goings on. So Shepton Prison has about 400 years of history. It originates from around 1610 when the the first building was here. It opened as a prison in 1625. So it was originally a manor house that was converted and extended into a correction house at the time. Um, Over the years, it grew um, to pretty much what you can see today. Um, The prison... I mean, the the wealth of history that we have here from, you know, if you look back to the 1600s, the diseases that were around in prison and the deaths that would have taken part then um, to the Victorian times when you talk about hard labor. And again, you know, medicine wasn't available and all that sort of thing. So deaths were pretty rife um, at that period of time as well. And of course, that always creates the addition of a few um, spooky bits and pieces (laughs) um, of the um those that are left behind if you like those that like to kind of haunt the place and and i guess at one point this would have been their home and this is where they want to roam for the rest of their lives or not lives (laughs) now to make the experience even spookier he told us that executions were taking place on site from the late 1800s some were civilian and some were from a period of time where the americans in the second world war were actually based in the prison Mm. some were hung and some were shot by firing squad One of the spirits that are said to roam around here um, is a gentleman who potentially was heading towards the firing squad wall itself. Uh, We had the, and I say we collectively, the prison service had the kitchens refurbished back in around 2010, 2011. uh, And they had it completely refloored and new equipment, etc, etc. Um, the gentleman that was in the kitchen was on his own at the time and he was actually reflooring the floor um, and he um, felt a presence behind him and he looked around to see this gentleman walking through the doorway uh, from which there was only a wall behind him straight across the kitchen floor and out through the other side. He described the gentleman as wearing a khaki-coloured clothing uniform, a khaki-coloured hat with a red feather out of it as well. Now, this was quite a traditional American uniform, so we've obviously put two and two together to assume that it was an American that was walking through. Now, whether that person in particular was one of those that was actually about to be shot by the firing squad and he was making his final walk once again or whether it was part of the 11 in the firing squad we we just don't know um and it's really difficult to ever know these sorts of things you know you can only guess what they're what's happening and with that we went on our tour we picked a really good day for it actually it was tuesday the 22nd right now I have a bone to pick with you. So most people, listeners, you you know, Friday the 13th is a date that you're associated with, uh, you know, bad things. Karen neglected to tell me she had her own version of Friday the 13th that she's been quite superstitious about her entire life. And that was Tuesday the 22nd, isn't it, Karen? Yes, I know. I didn't realise as I was booking it. And to be fair, nothing weird has happened to me on Tuesday the 22nd for quite a long period of time. So that's probably why I didn't notice. But when I was younger, you know, everything went wrong on Tuesday the 22nd. So something go wrong in my life, I say, oh, what date is it? Oh, yeah, it's Tuesday the 22nd, every time. 
every time. So perfect date to go on a tour. Yeah, of the most haunted <laughs> prison in the UK. Fantastic. So anyway, we went for a walk with our microphone deep into the bowels of the old part of the prison. Are you ready for something unbelievable? <laughs> okay, so we're entering B wing. Just coming in through. It's very odd feeling to it, isn't it? It's very quiet. Yeah, quite echoey. The lights conveniently are mostly off, but there's, I think there's not a lot of natural daylight, which yeah, adds to it. Very dark, isn't it? Dark, dingy, echoey. Bit mouldy, bit echoey. Cold as well. Cold. Definitely it, cold. You know. Oh, here we go. So there's so there's a sign here that says we can enter the 1600 cell room. This this is one of the oldest cell rooms in the prison. Yeah, and this is the old. If this is the oldest prison in the country, that must be the oldest prison cell in the, country. in the country. Gosh. Yeah. Looks like we can go into the room. Oh, we can go in. So there's a, there's a mat on the floor which makes it look like we can go in. So I'm just going to... God. This is cold and creepy and tiny. Oh my God, it's tiny. Wow. So this was bricked up and they rediscovered it. Bloody, this is weird. Right, come on in. So this is, it's it's tall. It's probably about what five, six foot long and two, three foot wide. Um, you could just about lie down in it. You could fit probably if you were a short average person. single bed in it, and that is it. But there's also a window Tiny. which looks into. Oh my god, there's a hand. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's a model. Oh my god. <laughs> so there's a model. <laughs> so. so there's a there's a like there's a window with iron bars which looks into another cell which is um, completely dark and at the end of that cell there's another <laughs> set of iron bars and there's a hand and, and I grabbed Karen's arm as I saw the hand but it's definitely a model because yeah. I'm still looking at it so that will be appearing on the old Instagram oh my god <laughs> that is amazing kudos to whoever set that one up that's quite clever. Well, it's safe to say that despite being pretty cold and a little bit mm. a little bit odd feeling, we didn't actually really experience anything very paranormal, did we? There was definitely no, no hide and shriek with Casper. Oh, I like that. <laughs> yes, I see what you did there. Um, no, we even tried um, the electronic voice phenomenon technique, and this is used by quite a lot of paranormal investigators. And what you do is you leave a recording device in a haunted location, and then you listen back to it later at a much higher volume and see if you can hear any voices on there. Um, and we actually tried a variation on this, and this is where you speak to the ghosts, and then you record it on your device where you know you kind of wait for a response and you might not be able to hear it but you record that and you ask your next question and then you listen back to the recording later and that was Shepton Mallet suggested that we we had a go at doing that and see what would happen yeah and I'm afraid I listened back to a lot of audio from our visit <laughs> to the prison uh with very little uh mm. if anything to show for it I'm afraid it was a tour distinctly lacking in ectoplasm and yes. uh I didn't I didn't hear any spooky voice I'm no. afraid no matter how loud I put the recording um and Chris actually said that often there's an explanation for this phenomenon too when people do hear the voices um so the obvious one would be perhaps there were actually people nearby that maybe you weren't paying attention to or you didn't necessarily hear yeah um and just a snippet of their conversation was picked up by mm -hmm. the recorder so you, you've got actual living voices yeah um but the other one is that he's noticed that actually it works best on really crappy recorders which have a lot of of hiss and crackle and actually what you hear and what you pick out doesn't always come in the form of fully formed sentences that are mm -hmm. very easy to understand um it's more that you hear a different sound and it's the kind of experience where you know if um, say you're like looking at a painting and you can't really tell what it is yeah. and then someone points it out to you and then suddenly what they've said to you is the only thing you can see. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like that with electronic voice. You, somebody interprets it and says, oh, I think it sounds a bit like this and then suddenly you can hear it clear as day even though before you were just like, well, it kind of sounds like a bit of a hiss. Yeah, and Chris actually uses this in, in some of his lectures as well, doesn't he? So he'll have a recording He'll play it to an audience and then he'll point out what, you know, what you could potentially hear in there. And suddenly the audience can hear that on the recording. Um, and we didn't see any orbs either, did we, in any of our photographs? No, unfortunately no. not. This is a big part of actual Most Haunted, wasn't it? Yeah. I can remember Yvette shrieking, I've seen an orb. <laughs> um, but I have to confess, we actually weren't there in the pitch black. We were no. late afternoon. Um, mm. 
there was still some daylight and you know perhaps it was because we had you know better digital cameras but I mean it was very dusty there could have been something but um no no orbs I'm afraid a few spooky selfies but I think the those faces were (laughs) recognizable and we've got a quite a clear explanation as to what was scary about those pictures <laughs> maybe you know maybe it's just that ghosts aren't up to date with all the latest equipment that they don't realize that your digital recorder is recording maybe they maybe take in some kind of old device that they recognize means that they will talk to you oh you're saying i should have gone in with an old school tape recorder <laughs> maybe yeah do you know what i actually do have one i do still have do a tape you? recorder maybe next time <laughs> so we find ourselves in a haunted house i'll i'll do what they all do in the um in the shows and i'll mm. come in with a backpack and a belt just like laden <laughs> with kit um we'll give that a go and see see if it happens but um no nothing unfortunately yeah. um and of course Ghostly experiences don't just happen in haunted houses or haunted prisons, do they? Because a lot of people experience it in their own home and quite often in their own bed. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people will have, Mm. like, I've lost the keys, there's a poltergeist moving stuff around. But yeah, Yeah. as you said, one of the most common ones is actually something that is probably linked to a real phenomenon that's been described as sleep paralysis. Mm. So this is something where, as you said, you're at home, you're in bed, um, and it's it's this feeling where you're, you're lying in bed and you feel awake, but it's like you're paralyzed and whatever you do, you cannot get your body to move. Mm. Um, And that sounds scary enough, uh, I think. But actually, when you're in this experience, people uh, have um, described a really, really heightened, intense sense of fear. And and some people will go so far as to see things in the room with them. So whether that's a person stood at the end of the bed or like an apparition or or sometimes even something weighing you down on your chest. Um, And some people will actually have really intense hallucinations with it Mm. um and if you didn't know that this actually is a very well described medical phenomenon which has been studied Mm. absolutely that sounds petrifying and of course the first thought you're going to is there is some kind of ghostly ghoul in my room i'm being haunted i'm having a paranormal experience yeah exactly and that makes that makes absolute sense and and it's another one of those cases that if you don't know what the real reason is for feeling a certain way, it's very easy to feel frightened and then maybe make assumptions about paranormal activity. Um, but just because you don't know what the rational explanation is doesn't mean there isn't one. Yeah, I mean, I think looking back, I think I've had a period where I've experienced sleep paralysis only on one or two occasions and it was terrifying. Mm. Um, and I never twigged until we spoke to Chris about yeah. sleep paralysis that that was actually what I had experienced. And I feel a lot more kind of calm about that strange anomaly in my life. Yeah. Now knowing that lots of people experience it and there are recognised triggers for it. Yeah. And um, if you look on the NHS website, they've got a whole section on sleep paralysis and they suggest it could be caused by anxiety, PTSD, stress, changes in working or sleeping patterns. And all of those, of course, at the moment, a lot of people are experiencing all of those. So there may be lots more incidences of, of this phenomenon happening. Um, but um, we don't know exactly what it is or how it works. And it's thought that your body is not moving smoothly between the different stages of sleep. And that's what the problem is. Mm. So there are two different forms of sleep paralysis. You've got hypnopagic uh, when you're f- falling asleep and then you've got hypnopompic, which is as you're waking up. And this is the most common one that people experience. They mm. wake up. And um, what happens is during sleep, your body alternates between REM and non-REM sleep. So this is rapid eye movement sleep and non-rapid yeah. eye movement sleep. And you have these in cycles. And then non-REM sleep is the type of sleep that happens first. It's generally Mm -hmm. lighter. And this is when your body is forced to relax and all of your muscles relax. They're kind of switched off in a way. And after a non-REM cycle, you have a REM cycle. And this is where your brain is firing on all cylinders. Mm -hmm. You know, you're dreaming. Your eyes are moving very rapidly, hence the name. Yeah. Um, but your muscles are still very, very relaxed. And this this phase tends to last for about 45 minutes per cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of people will say, I don't feel very rested because I, ro- I woke up in a, in yeah. a REM cycle uh, rather than naturally in your lighter sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is the kind of thing, if you are jolted out of a REM cycle or you're, you're, you wake up when you're in this really intense period, your brain will wake up. You can open your eyes. You can be aware of your surroundings. You know, you know you're in your room. You can see your room. Yeah. But your body hasn't really realize that it's no longer asleep yeah so all of your muscles are still very much in this intensely relaxed stage so you can feel paralyzed yeah um and the fear that comes with it 
um, in intense cases is, all, is thought to be because of the amygdala. And this is part of the brain that deals with flight or fight response. And this is overactive during sleep paralysis. Mm. And, and what, it's, what is hoped is that if, as people get to understand this, um, they become less anxious. And by becoming less anxious, they're less likely to experience this potentially as an issue. So, so being aware of it as an issue will help potentially reduce the number of incidences, which would be great. Yeah, I mean, as with many fears, simply being able to have a label and a category and to know yeah. you're not alone in experiencing it can go a really long way towards um, getting getting around it and, and mm. understanding what it is. Um, so, yeah. But, I mean, there are quite a few other potential causes of paranormal mm -hmm. activity or experiences. Um, so, for example, just a couple of them. There are some forms of epilepsy which can actually cause somebody to have a really spooky feeling that there's a presence stalking you close by. And that sounds petrifying yeah, to me. Yeah, goodness, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, there are all sorts of combinations of exhaustion and drug and alcohol abuse, mm. which can also lead to these fears, uh, this paranoia and this feeling of, of presence and, and being in a kind of paranormal situation. Yeah. So to head towards the end of the programme, I think what we need to do is is go back to Chris, don't you? Yeah, definitely. So here's one that might help you sleep if you're concerned about things that go bump in the night. In terms of storytelling and folklore, mm -hmm. ghostly stories and paranormal stories, they've got a certain allure oh, and they yeah. have done yeah. for generations all across the world. Yeah. Why do you think it is that we as humans almost need there to be something else to believe in? Well, I mean, that's a very good point and one actually that, that really should be included, I think. I mean, I come from a, a background of kind of neuropsychology, cognitive psychology, and I'm aware of all the biases and, you know, the things that make us misremember and misperceive and misinterpret and all that kind of stuff. But that's all the kind of coggy side. The other really important factor, of course, is the emotional, motivational side. Now, you know, why do so many people believe in ghosts? Because actually, if you think about it, none of us like the idea that when we die, that's it. And maybe even less so the idea that when our loved ones die, that's it. We'll never have contact with them again. And so anything, any evidence that suggests that there really is life after death is something that we are very inclined to believe. We want it to be true. Now, if it is true, then there's the kind of positive side, the idea that we all go to heaven and, you know, everything's wonderful. But there's also this notion, well, something survives when the body dies, and the idea that maybe that something, whatever it is, can hang around on the earthly plane. So it's the kind of flip side of the positive side of belief in life after death. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it, you know, that any kind of evidence for life after death is something that people want to believe in. Now, on one of our sister podcasts, The Infinite Monkey Cage... Wait, wait, wait. Hang <laughs> you, you cannot call The Infinite Monkey Cage a sister podcast. Really? No. No, <laughs> Professor Brian Cox is never going to even know who we are, let alone want us to be trying to latch on and call ourselves oh. a sister podcast. 10% braver, <laughs> got to be 10% braver, put ourselves out there. <laughs> Somebody tweet Professor Brian Cox and let them know what we're up to. Maybe he'd like to come on an episode and show us up, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, anyway. pipe dreams. <laughs> So 2020 has done weirder things. It has. This is true. Um, so on one of the one of the episodes, um, Professor Cox was talking about, um, you know, talking about ghosts and saying that um, if you've got a ghost, then you've got to have a medium that's carrying the pattern of the human to form the ghost. Oh, hang on. Me yeah. Medium or oh. like medium. <laughs> medium in the scientific sense. <laughs> so uh, this medium, so there's got to be particles or maybe, you know, waves that's present, uh, which actually forms that actual ghost. Mm. Um, and if ghosts were real, then surely the Large Hadron Collider at CERN would have detected those particles, either the particles, you know, those particles, or we'd have detected the waves. Well, I mean, I see the logic there, mm. but Professor Bob Jacobson, has uh, mm -hmm. has my comeback. I mean, he said, as yeah. I think the logical response is, but we're still searching for some of these particles. We mm -hmm. haven't necessarily found them yet, doesn't mean that we won't find them. So for example, axions, which are the particles that cold dark matter is presumed to be made of. Mm -hmm. um, at the time of recording, we don't still know if they exist. You know, we haven't found those yet. So maybe ghosts are made of axions? Oh, well, but, um, but dark matter, you know, I thought the whole point of dark matter is that it's dark. So it doesn't reflect light. It doesn't emit radiation. So how would you see them 
if they were made of particles of dark matter. That's true, yeah. That's true. You wouldn't get your spooky face at the end of a corridor, would you? No, it, it wouldn't be able to interact with you in any way if it was made of dark matter. So does that mean you're ready to believe in ghosts now? <laughs> well, well, we'll see if we, if we ever find the ghost particle. I think they should call it the ghost particle. I mean, you've got the god particle. Why not the ghost particle? Yeah. Well, you, uh, you email Professor Brian Cox and let him know. <laughs> yeah. If you ever find the ghost particle, you need to call it the, the, the Bristian Collins ghost particle. <laughs> Oh, I like it. It's got a real ring to it. It's got a real ring to it. <laughs> All right. I mean, I, I think that's enough for today. I think we've probably reached the end of the episode. <laughs> I think it's it's time to do a little bit of show admin. But this time, <laughs> this time we're not in the admin and poltergeist room, oh, which yes. was actually something that we found. <laughs> it had an actual sticker, a piece yeah. of paper on one of the walls uh, of a room. <laughs> <laughs> that to Madame Brizit. It was the admin and poltergeist room. Again, yeah. no poltergeist was seen, unfortunately. <laughs> no. But, we, um, even, we even left an object round on one side and spoke to them and invited them to throw it, but it didn't happen. No, no. No, no humans or poltergeists were harmed in the making <laughs> of this episode. <laughs> so let's do a little roundup of the things that we managed to sneak in mm-hmm. on this Halloween-themed day. Yes. Um, you got Lift Your Spirits in mm-hmm. pretty early. That was pretty good. Uh, we wandered around the astral plane. Yeah. I did a pretty rubbish ooh <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> we got in uh, the Overlook Hotel, which is from The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, unbelievable. <laughs> that's pretty bad, that one. I don't think that's our finest work. Casper got a little mention, of course, yep. when we were trying to play Hide and Shriek. Yeah. Something I might play tonight, <laughs> Halloween. Um, we got in a few uh, things that go bump in the night. Mm-hmm. You snuck in the odd medium or yeah. two. And actually, we, d- we managed to get in a Ghostbusters. We're ready to believe you now. Yeah. And so also, a few in there. who are you going to call as well? Chris mentioned. Oh, of course. Yes. Chris Chris himself yeah. put that one in. That was and, superb. Um, well played of, by our guest. And of course, we've recorded this on a dark and stormy afternoon. We have. Mm. We have. On All Hallows Eve. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I think that's enough for today. So if you'd like to hear more, you can, of course, join us on Patreon, where we've got some extra bonus episodes. We pop one of those up extra a month, where we have clips from our interviewees and us chatting about what we've been doing that month. Yeah, it's a really wonderful, lovely way to support the show, uh, mm. if you fancy it. And don't forget, you can also find us on all of the social media. We're on Instagram, mm-hmm. Facebook and Twitter to yep. search for Small Screen Science. And you can visit our website for a couple of blogs and some more extra stuff, smallscreenscience.co.uk. Yeah, so see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.